Welcome back everyone to R2Cast number 16. Uh, we're filming this in May time, but this should be going live on the 20th of August, uh, if my uh, organisation is correct, and it probably won't be. But um, I'm just going to introduce you to our guest today and then we'll go into some of the boring stuff and then we'll get into the, the crux of the matter with, with Richard's story. So today we have uh, Richard Cornack, you guys may know of him as the Funky Farmer. If you want to say hello there, Richard. Hi, uh, hello everyone. So, um, yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, Richard and I have actually been sat here for probably the best part of the quarters of an hour, just sitting talking. And uh, we, we realised really, oh God, you know, we could have filmed <laughs> this podcast already. That's, that's sort of the average time. So we thought, let's get, let's get on into it. But uh, if you're new here, guys, thanks for coming along. If you've, you've been coming for a while as, as well, th- thank you for, for continuing your support. If you are new, make sure to check out Rural Two Kitchen on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, Facebook's the one, the sort of home of all where it all began. Uh, my girlfriend's now in charge of running the Instagram and she's telling me what to do. And what I'm to do is nothing because I'm rubbish at it. I'm not Instagram friendly. So uh, check them out. And then also, for if you're really interested in the podcast specifically, the main places are Spotify and YouTube. Um, so subscribe on Rural Two Kitchen on YouTube and follow the R2Cast on Spotify. There's other ones that's available on as well, uh, Breaker, Google Podcasts, uh, the iTunes one, what's it called, Apple Music, Breaker, it said Breaker, Podbean, sorry, and I'm just trying to, if you guys have any other ones that you want me to do it on, I shall, but that's two minutes of boringness, hopefully from now on it'll be a lot more interesting, we'll pass you on to the the sort of, uh, the focus of today. Um, so Richard, was was did you come from farming? Was Have you always been on a farm? What's your sort of story regarding that? Um, yeah, well, I, I grew up on the farm. Our family farm, it's, it's, we've been there a long time. Um, our family has been farming at Newhouse Farm for 199 years. So I grew up on the farm. My grandfather lived in the farmhouse I now live in, and I lived next door in a little annex my parents built when they got married. Uh, but I was surrounded by it right from an early age, you know. And, I got lovely memories of when I was a kid of riding on the back of a cow, which my dad had sat me on, and um, all those kind of things that you sort of see in rural Idyll. I was very lucky. Uh, there were chickens, you know, going around the farmyard and stuff. Um, but yeah, so I was surrounded by farming right from an early age, um, and here I still am. Yeah, and I, I mean, in, in an effort to not be cheeky, I assume you weren't around when you started farming in the in the in the place you are at the minute. <laughs> but yeah. uh, one year off two hundred—that's that's quite that's pretty impressive. But so, yeah. in some ways, cool. not unheard of, but uh, relatively uncommon these days. So brilliant. And actually, one thing I forgot to mention is, uh, in regards backdrops, I think Richard is winning on our guests so far. Well, in fairness, a few haven't. I don't know of so far yet, but uh, that is quite the backdrop. The Paddington to... Bear bit is like, the best bit, isn't it? I see everyone that, likes, yeah, yeah. Everyone likes Paddington. <laughs> Watching over you, making sure you're not doing any wrong. <laughs> the, uh, if you look behind me, the England at Fireplace, that beam there was put in by myself and my father in 1990 because the original right. beam had been torn off by my grandmother when it caught fire. Wow. And then she bricked up the, bricked up the fire. So what my dad did, he had an oak tree on the farm that died. So he had the beam sawn out of the trunk of the oak tree. And we, we fed it through the wall, just over there behind me, and all the way through. And so that is a tree from the farm behind me. There's something nice about that, isn't there? Uh, I, I love it. I love the, you know, the history of this house is wonderful. 
Our, we've got a fireplace at home built from uh, stones in the burn next to the garden. It's, there's, there's a connection to it. Uh, yeah. But th this isn't an interior design show. As yeah. we, we could find ourselves getting into that. Um, <laughs> what what type of farm is it you're running there, Richard? What, what have you well, got? We're raised full sale. I mean, we are the cliche small family farm. And it's kind of like, a, I hate to say a dying breed, but it's, it's becoming more and more unusual in the fact that it's, it's myself and my brother but we're a very small scale. We're only milking 70 cows. Um, we've got a farm's about 130 acres. I always get this wrong. I always go 140, 130. It's about 130. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we milk 70 cows. We rear our own replacements. Um, and we. I'm also in a couple of other things. I'm in a couple of schemes, environmental schemes, higher level stewardship and entry level stewardship, which we run alongside the farm. So we're, we're not organic, but we're very conventional in our farming in the fact that we, I really like the wildlife aspect of it. I'm not trying to be an intensive farmer getting the most out of the land. I enjoy the fact that we've kind of taken the low input, low output kind of approach, if you like. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, I looked into it. higher level stewardships uh, based around sort of increasing conservation. Is that right? And sort of like ponds in the area for biodiversity. Yeah, that's right. Um, so we, we've got... A, a few things that got us into the scheme. I put in a new orchard about 10 years ago, um, and that was a traditional orchard with standard fruit trees, the really big, tall ones that you don't get in modern fruit farms. Um, and then we, we were out of the scheme. We managed to restore some ponds. Um, I've got a kind of management agreement on the, on the hedgerows, which means I do a, a trimming routine that's slightly different from conventional. In that I don't trim them every year. Um, and also... I've got um, a couple of uh, semi-improved grassland uh, hay meadows, which have got wildflowers. I actually increased the biodiversity there by putting some more wildflower mix in. Uh, to, you know, so I've got those sort of things going on. Um, it's not always easy on a small farm, though, doing this, because you haven't got a lot of land to play with, to lose, if you know what I mean. Because by doing that, I've reduced our output, if you like, from the hay meadows, because I'm not allowed to put fertiliser on them. So there is a balance in what I can do against what I would like to do, you know, because you can't play with a lot. You haven't got a lot of acres to play with. So you're not allowed fertiliser. Are you allowed pesticides and stuff like that? No, on no. the that's only on the hay the hay meadows and stewardship. I'm not allowed to put. Fertilizer. Oh, sorry, got you. The rest of the farm I can, but on on the hay meadows I'm not allowed to. I'm not allowed to put any artificial. I'm not even allowed to put manure on them. Okay. The idea with the wildflowers is. Um, Wildflowers don't like uh, a lot of fertility in the soil. They like land that isn't very fertile because otherwise the grass outcompetes them. Yeah. So the idea of improving this this meadow was to actually reduce the fertility of the soil by withdrawing all the kind of manure and the artificial fertilizer to actually produce less grass rather than more, which is kind of going against the grain farming, really, isn't it? Well, for so that gives the flowers a benefit. Yeah, I mean, you could say it's going against the, the conventional farming grain, but from a, a biodiversity perspective, that's, I assume, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I could only afford to do that in a couple of fields, but you know what? It's, it's absolutely lovely. It's really nice. Uh, and I, I see, I'm not, I'm not going to go into the territory of, of, of getting into whole vegan against farming debate, yep. but I, I've seen a kind of quite a, a significant number of people saying, oh, switch to a vegan diet because it's better for the planet 
Well, there is an element of truth to that, but also there's an element of untruth in the fact that if you go against grassland and go into cropping, a lot of uh, grain crops are, are constantly cultivated and sprayed and stuff, and very much a monoculture. And I see this with our grassland in the fact that our grassland is so rich in biodiversity because of all the different wildflowers and the grasses and things that grow in it. And that definitely benefits the bees and the butterflies that are there that you wouldn't get on, say, a crop of grain or cereals that's sprayed and just most cereal. If you look at most cornfields, they're completely one crop, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, exa well, exactly. Well, exactly. Environment, really. And but that's the, the, yeah, it is. But it's an interesting one though because when you're when you're growing a crop that is for the most part going to be monoculture, you know, it's it's very rare that it's not. Um, yeah, you you're you're not getting the chance to sequester that carbon, um, you know, and I, I think it's really interesting. And you, you're talking about wildlife there. You've mentioned bees and butterflies. Is is that the only sort of wildlife you're seeing, or are you seeing some extra birds and stuff, or what? Oh yeah, well, I mean, I mean, for a classic example of something that I don't think people think about, you know, again, people dissing um, livestock farming, is that. No one's past is perfect. It's very rare that you've got a field that is um, just grass. It's going to be, there's going to be weeds in and stuff. And, and one of the things that I see in the autumn, if you get um, a lot of thistles, especially the bull thistles, you know, the big ones like the Scottish thistle. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you know what those look like. You've got a few around you somewhere, I'm sure. The goldfinches really love those. Okay. And I see them, I see them fly in on the thistles just to get the seeds at the top. And that's really interesting. Right. It's not something you think about. You know, you, you kind of think, oh, thistle, what good's that? But actually, the goldfinches, because we've got quite a lot of goldfinches around the farm, they really like them. That's interesting. I'm sure your neighbours love you when the birds take the, the seeds away from the thistles and drop them to them. Well, you, you've got to, I think you've got to give a bit back. I, I, um, I totally believe in, on a farm, everyone should find a little bit of rough land or let a head grow wild or something because you take all the time don't you, from a farm you're taking yeah. you, you're getting a livelihood off it and you're getting your you know your cattle uh, grazing it and stuff but you know there's nothing to say you know you don't need to farm every court every square inch you need to give a bit back even if uh, one of the nice things we did a few years back we just fenced some corners off on the field so where the field corners the hedge corners went like that yeah. we so my thumb is imagine the field like that my thumb is then the fence going across. Yeah. And then we planted that with some trees and things like hazel and stuff. So that meant we had a scruffy corner. And that just gives cover for different birds and deer and things like that, you know, yeah. which necessarily would just be grazed right to the hedgerow. That's pretty and simple, quite cheap to do, nice thing to see, you know. Yeah, and it is a, a way of giving back, actually. I've never considered it in that sense, but that's a nice way to look at it. And I think there's that sort of battle between biodiversity and carbon. It's very hard to have a carbon efficient and a biodiverse farm, um, but it looks like you're on the way to certainly a very biodiverse farm, uh, which is... Well, I wouldn't be on a farm if it was just a boring monoculture. For me, my greatest pleasure is walking around and being immersed in this wildlife and the trees and the, I was out in the hedge I was out moving an electric fence today for the cows and I took two photos, one will be on Instagram tomorrow actually I took one of dandelion heads all across the field okay, because there's a pack of dandelion now okay it's not great farming in a way but you know, 
so what? I can give a, I can have dandelions in my field if I want to. Can't I? Beautiful view. And then um, in the hedgerow was some mayflower, you know, some hawthorn blossom. And I was just like, take a moment to enjoy that, really, you know? Yeah, and it's hard not to enjoy that, is it? You know, oh, taking exactly. that in. And... and also, you know, you've got to enjoy it because in winter it's bloody awful. <laughs> <laughs> It's wet and horrible. You don't get any fire then. <laughs> absolutely, you absolutely. You can. <laughs> oh, I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So, the, uh, just Scotland, you must know what that's like. No, no, we 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 don't get rain. No. Talk about the lie of the century, but um, yeah. yeah, you just this is the last thing on on the wildlife stuff. I've, I've actually I've went down a rabbit hole here. You know, right. if you pardon the pun, I never actually thought I would. Um, in the, the orchard there, if I take it you're harvesting quite a bit of fruit there, is that apples mainly, or? Yeah, so I put the, I put the orchard in ten years ago under stewardship, and and the, what I had to do then, as part of the stewardship agreement, was to go for not the modern orchard. I I couldn't put in a golden delicious and a you know a, a Granny Smith. It had to be sort of. I wouldn't say the word rare breed, but kind of unusual sort of varieties that aren't necessarily being planted very often now. So I put in, um, I put in a mix. I have, I have no one tree is, the, no two trees are the same. So there's 29 different trees. Each tree is different. So I started off with eating apples and pears and things like that near the farmhouse because I re realised that that would probably be the ones that I would use the yeah. most. And I went for these dual purpose fruits. Some of the apples are actually can be used for cider, but they can also be used for cooking and eating, um, okay. mostly cooking, I think. And then at the back, I put cider orchard in at the back, get things like yellow huffcap and things like that. Um, coming forward, I had beauty of the bar, things like that. Um, but uh, so it's a bit of a mixture. But I mean, even in the 10 years I've been doing that, you can see the biodiversity on that because the birds really love going in on the on the trees and stuff, you know. My uh, that is a for the soul. Yes, I can imagine. I can, mm -hmm. I can just, I can just picture my mom listening to this, getting all those names of the apples and getting them, getting them in at home. Um, good stuff, though. I mean, uh, so, so that's the farm, um, and and what's going on at the farm, and the, there's there's more to Richard Cornick than just the farm, though, isn't there? There's a, uh, albeit sort of based from home and sort of very much a. Uh, a beast from on the farm but you've, you've got a few things in media and whatnot and I want to go into YouTube at one point I've got a few more things to to jump into first if you don't mind um, am I right in saying you've got a book is that yeah yeah I had a book um, published it's actually about 11 years ago okay um, I, do you want me to tell you the full story of how it went to absolutely yeah yeah um, quite interesting really i a lot of the things, okay, I think in life are, do you know what, have a go at them because what's, what could go wrong? If it doesn't work, you fail, but at least you've had a go. Yeah. You know, and so this is a project. I wouldn't plan to get a book published at all, but I ended up doing it. Um, so I, I decided I'd like to make a record of our farm for a year because it, it's like anything, it changes over time, doesn't it? And if you don't, do, if you don't capture that moment now, it's gone. And I realised my dad was getting older and stuff, and I wanted to sort of do a, a year's history of it, if you like. So what I did, I carried a camera on my in my top pocket for a year. And it was only a cheap camera, because I, I don't really know about photography. I'm not a photographer. I just 
like yeah. anyone now, you can snap. This is pre, this is pre doing it on your phone. This is pre smartphone. So I carried a little digital camera with me, did a year's worth of pictures. And then I got to the point where actually I didn't know what to do with these pictures. I had so many. So what I then did, I, I actually had a book made out of them. Like you go online and you can get anyone true print or someone will make you a book. I had that done. I gave it to my mum and dad for Christmas with no other plans. Uh, and a lot of people sort of picked up on it and said, oh, that's really nice. I really like that. Um, and they said, they were going, you should get that published. Well, that's the kind of easier said than done. Isn't it? I don't know even about publishing. Um, but what I did see in the local paper is someone had just had a book published by a local um, publishing house. So I literally just emailed them and said, look, I've done this thing. People really like it. Would you like to see it? And they basically, I went to see them. They said, yeah, we love it. We'd like to publish it as a, a softback book. And I was like, oh. <laughs> and, and the only difference they decided to want me to do between my the version I'd done with my mum and dad and, and the one that went out into the public was they wanted me to write the story of my year. Because the one that I'd done for mum and dad, I've still got it, it's a lovely book. But the one I'd done for mum and dad, I just put a few captions, but I hadn't written anything because I thought my mum and dad know about the farm. They don't need to be told, you know, they don't need to be told that that's a Massey Ferguson 135 tractor. Yes. Because they they knew it was so i then wrote a series of kind of captions and text to go with it uh and it came out but that book was what got me into youtube really and it, and a few other different things because what happened is i um i then thought well maybe i should do a dvd version of the book so then right instead of carrying a digital camera with me i carried a video camera with me for a year and again this was something that was again a bit pre-internet so we're talking 2000 and um 2011 i was doing this so it's a little yes. bit early days of youtube it wasn't like there weren't such a thing as bloggers or anything like that yeah. they were just people that went on youtube um i filmed it for a year didn't actually plan to put it on YouTube. I, I was going to do DVDs. And then I realised I had so much footage that it was like a, a DVD box set would have been about four miles long. So I thought, right, there's no way I can do that. What what I'll then do is I'll, do you know what? I'll upload it to YouTube for my kids to see. I wasn't trying to, there was no, there was no thought at all of trying to be a personality on YouTube because it wasn't really, if you look back on most YouTubers, there there aren't many that started in 2011 or earlier when I said oh. Most vloggers have done it in the last five years because they, not being funny, but they've probably seen people like me and gone, I can do that. So I started uploading just for my kids, but I didn't realise that I would get traction. People would start relating to the videos. And if you look at the early videos I did, I didn't do, I didn't really appear in them. I did a lot of filming of, of what was going on on the farm and I did a commentary, but I didn't turn the camera around and speak to me, speak to the camera. Yeah. And it was only, it's really funny, I didn't realise this, but you, YouTube or Google who own YouTube monitor, or did, did 10 years ago, monitor people that were doing quite well on YouTube. And I had, a, I was contacted by YouTube and they said to me, We'd like to do some mentoring, one-to-one -one mentoring over the phone from Google HQ in London. I said this this was when it was quite niche. There weren't a lot of people, so they could contact people. I don't think they do it now because everyone's on YouTube. Yeah. 
they contacted me and said, we'd like to give you a few pointers. We think we can get you to get 20,000 subscribers. Okay. Okay. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. Because I had about 500 or something. I don't know why I had. Maybe it's a thousand. It wasn't like. And, I, and um, they said, what you need to do is you need to become a personality on the, on the channel. It doesn't need to be just you filming. You need to turn the camera on you and talk to the camera. Um, and then people will relate to you. And I didn't know about that. But that was something they mentored me for. And it was only a couple of phone calls, you know, a few evenings. And I did it. And then, and then it sort of took off, really. So here I am, 10 years or nine years on from when I started doing Funky Farmer videos on farming. And I tapped to a lovely bloke in Scotland. How about that? That's all right, isn't it? A lovely bloke, that's not one. Oh, I mean, let's face it, nine years ago, you were only, how old were you then? How many years ago? Eleven. Nine years ago when I first started. Hey, nine years ago, I'd be 15. 15, hey. little young lad. Now you are <laughs> into... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's... I mean, it's crazy now because uh, it is, everyone's doing YouTube videos on farming now, aren't they? And that's a good thing, you know, it's... it's the beauty of it, it really is, is it's totally accessible to anyone. Yeah. There's no hierarchy of, do you know what? You're not good enough for YouTube. You're not coming in. It's literally a 10-year-old or, or, you know, 12-year-old or whatever could get a little camera or on their phone, they could get a YouTube channel going and they can do their videos of their dad's cows or whatever they're interested in. I think that's wonderful, really. It is. And, and, I, don't, and I don't want to call out media channels or anything but I don't think farming is covered enough in this country on the telly you know we mm. get the odd thing here and there uh, but it's more aimed at farmers and maybe there's not a market for it there but I think YouTube's proven there is well, and, I mean, uh, it's interesting because Country File because <coughs> I'm an old old geezer I can remember Country File was a lot more farming based used to be on lunchtime on Sunday I think and it was very much focused for farmers and I think because we're talking, let's face it, if we're talking about media with farming, it's generally country farm that most people go to. Yeah. I think um, country farm, someone nicknamed it tiny farm. I think that's a bit unfair. But I think it's because they haven't got the time. They've got to try and focus on a, an audience that's only there for, what is it, an hour or something. They've got to pack a lot in. They don't just get farming stuff and they've got to go for all the nice shiny stuff to make people see it. And YouTube... And that's not the BBC's fault. They've got to try and do that. The YouTube gives the chance for someone to do rough and ready farming videos where it's really muck and bullets that wouldn't get on Country File. Uh, and it gives a voice to the, to the real farmers that are really doing it all the time and, and maybe not show all the shiny, lovely stuff. That, because if, I'm not dissing Adam Henson, but he's got some lovely kit on his farm. If you he come does. on our farm, I'm using a mower 30 years old. Envious, I think, for me. <laughs> yeah. You know, it does show real farming. A lot of people don't have really lovely kit. They they have, you know, the stuff they got to make do with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think agriculture, more than many other industries out there, you're expecting an emotional connection to some extent from a lot of your custom and you're the consumer because you're dealing with a, a live animal that you're consuming and that you've got to show that the real story and what's involved in in keeping those animals correctly uh, yeah so yeah I, I think you're right i think it, it can only be good um so so you've got the book i've just i just do a bit of research on on people i talk to sorry I, if you're watching on youtube or for richard that i'm talking to at the minute 
he's here on my iPad and my camera's here, so I should focus there. So both oh, yeah. you've got the book um, there. What was that? So the book went out of print last year, I think, but you might find the odd copy on YouTube if you want to look. Um, sorry, eBay. Okay. You're on a dairy farm. There's a few there. You might pick one up for about two quid on eBay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there's a plug for you, everyone, if you want to hear okay. more about Well, I don't get anything out of that, but I just, you know, if people want to look it up, they can get it. Yeah, I might have to have a look at it. <laughs> um, am I right in saying you've you've also done a bit of writing for the Smallholder Association? Is yeah, I wrote for a couple of magazines actually. Um, that was a small hole off the back of the book. Um, I got approached by a couple of people. It was really bizarre because I think they thought I could write. Uh, <laughs> and I hadn't, it was it's a really funny thing. One, you'll find this in life. You know, uh, one one thing leads to another. Really, without sometimes in, intending it to. So I got approached by Smallholder magazine who would ask me if I could write a series of articles about cattle rearing, um, which I did for a while. Um, and that was a nice little thing. Uh, but the, the one I'm really proud of, which, which I don't do anymore, but I, I did, was I got approached by the NFU and they've got a magazine called The British Farmer and Grower. And yes. the, the, the then editor approached me and said, um, well, we quite like your writing style. Would you write a column for us? It's quite interesting because I didn't know how to writing style. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I actually turned him down. I, well, I didn't turn him down, but I said, oh, I don't know if I could do this because I'm not really a writer. Could I do a, a blog or vlog or something? And he said, no, we'd like you to write a column. So I, I, he talked me into it. And I, I ended up on the NFU magazine having a column called Cornock's Corner, which I did for about five years. It wasn't every month, but it was like every now and then I'd do one. And I really enjoyed doing it. But the end, my time finished on that when the NFU changed their editor and then they revamped the magazine and, you know, you, your flavour of the month for a while and then the next person comes in and they choose someone else. But, you know, and I don't begrudge that. That's the way it is. But I was so lucky to be asked to do that because, it, you know, it gave me an, a, bit, a chance to write some stuff, which I would never have thought I could do. Yeah. All from, and if you think about it, it's all from this flipping little cheap digital camera I bought in Tesco's, you know, years before, not knowing that that would then lead to the book, to the YouTube channel, to doing the, you know what I mean? It's, and then this podcast, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and I used to do a slot on Radio Bristol as well, which again came off the book. And I still get, I still get contacted by radio actually. Were, were you I on get, Radio 4 at one point as well? Was, I did some stuff on Radio 4, yeah. Um, I, again, it kind of like what happens in the media world, I, well, as far as I can see, is that you get, to, you get to do a few bits and pieces and then you stay on a list. Yes. Because they know you're a safe pair of hands and you know you can talk and you know. So, so every now and then you get a phone call from someone saying, we've got this topic coming up on farming, talking about such and such. Would you be interested in doing an interview on it about, you know, to help with the story? And, and quite often I do, but every now and then I don't, because there was one recently about a vegan incident. And I just thought, I'm not going there because this is going to get nasty, because it generally does when you get involved with something like that. So I just said, I can't do it. It's not for me, I'm afraid. So, you know... Some media stuff you like to do, but sometimes you know you've got to choose your moments. I think it's and I, and I don't want to get into the, the vegan discussion because I've done it with a few folk in the podcast. But it's it's a shame 
they're always down spirals downward so quickly because the both parties are normally looking out for the same thing, which is the environment. If it's on an animal welfare perspective, it's sort of like a new kettle of fish, and I totally understand the perspective. But it's it there's there's a way that both parties could work together, and it just doesn't seem to happen, <laughs> which no. is a shame. You know, it's quite funny. We've got a vegan that lives on the farm um, right. because we an annex out, and uh, they li- she lives in there. I don't have an issue with that. We get yeah. on really well. You know, it's her choice. But what I don't like is the kind of when it gets all self-righteous and we're better yeah. than you and, you know, can get very nasty. I've seen, you know, you, you only have to look on some forums or comments on Facebook or something and you can see, you can see it all descends into oblivion of, ah, better not to go there, I think, sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And both parties are just as guilty as each other. Um, yeah. But it, it's, it's surreal because, like, I, I, I'm not a rugby person, but, I mean... I assume you from Gloucestershire are, <laughs> but I could no, be I'm wrong. Not, You're I not. Yeah. I've never done sports. Um, I play football. I wouldn't know who. If a famous footballer walked in here, I probably wouldn't know who he was. Oh, I could tell you the non-famous footballers, like, but <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and nobody cares if you like that sport and not that sport. But for some reason, no, uh, that's true. That's because you're not trying. To, rugby players aren't trying to convert football players into rugby players, and vice versa. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like we're slowly taking a step down that staircase at the minute, so we'll just jump out of it. Uh, yeah, you mentioned the the camera you bought in Tesco. Um, yeah. You've also went from buying a camera in Tesco to have your photo taken for Tesco. Uh, you know the face of a campaign at one point? Gosh, you've done your research, haven't you? I started it about 45 minutes ago. Cornock.co.uk, <laughs> didn't you? Um, Rather bizarrely, I used to be involved with, um, so I was part of a cooperative called Dairy Farmers of Britain, which was all dairy farmers, about two and a half thousand dairy farmers. And uh, we uh, sort of linked in with Tesco's and did a promotion called Local Choice Milk. And um, off the back of that, I became, rather bizarrely, I became the figurehead for that Local Choice Milk. And um, I've still got two of them upstairs. They made... 50 life-size cardboard cutouts of me holding a pint of milk, which they put around the Tesco supermarkets around the UK. <laughs> so, unfortunately for some people, they probably walked into Tesco's and saw me there going, little choice milk. Um, and I've still got, I got two of them myself. They gave me two. Which oh, yeah. kind of weird. After a while, you think, actually, what am I going to do with a life-size cardboard cutout of myself? <laughs> Because it's not something you sort of sit in the lounge with and just go, oh, hello, Rich, all right. <laughs> I can but imagine that is quite surreal. Funny things to do with your life. You know, if you're going to do it, anything, having something like that is quite fun, isn't it? You know? Absolutely. I mean, I, my dad is a, a, a complete, he despises, I think would be fair to say, the ex-president of the United States. And uh, I yeah. got him a big cutout of, of oh. uh, Mr. Trump. And uh, I was not his friend. That's, that's I, bet. Sure. I bet. I bet he put it on a bonfire, didn't he? he? He didn't. I managed to hide it away in my room to bring it out for another time. But uh, <laughs> I assume it'd be quite strange to have one of yourself. Did you? Did you go to a couple of the stores to see it? Or I did. Yes. I mean, yeah. Again, a bit of an earlier thing. It was a little bit before social media was so big. But you know, I did go and see one or two. Yes, it's a bit weird. And then, and then one of my mates went in there and stuck a moustache on it. You know, one of those stick-on Velcro-type ones. He went, 
And I went in there, and there's a flipping big droopy black moustache. <laughs> Googly eyes. And, and... It was funny. It, was, it didn't get vandalised. It was quite lucky it didn't. But, um, yeah, it was, I mean, you know, it was quite fun. I mean, the funniest thing was, when I had, to go and, I had to go and do a photo shoot for it, and if you saw the cardboard cutout, it was me next, I can't remember exactly, I'm in a field holding this thing with all these uh, cattle behind me in the field. It wasn't like that at all. I was in a in someone's conservatory in 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 uh, Wilson under Ed, not far from me, in the middle of winter with the curtains drawn and, and a white screen behind me, and it just that <laughs> background, and then he just cut you know cut and paste me out onto this field background. So it was all a little bit, but that's you know media for you, isn't it? Transition from humble everyday farmer to to celebrity. Oh, humble everyday farmer. <laughs> <laughs> oh good stuff um, and uh, we've sort of touched on the YouTube thing there Richard but I quickly go into it again I mean you mentioned in 2011 YouTube began in 2004 and from I think the first video with a million views was that Ronaldinho hitting the crossbar four times which was 2009 so it wasn't really a thing for, for the first five years so you were in there really in the first couple of years and it's, it's quite funny to I'm going to show my ridiculous overknowledge of YouTube here, but the fact you were getting contacted directly for sort of training sessions on how to do better on YouTube, yeah. I'm just imagining Sonia Wojcicki, the, the, the CEO of YouTube, sort of telling you what to do. But um, you started filming it and that was fine. You know, you just, you, you'd sort of got this camera, just tried to document it in some way. When... Did you realise it was it was like a it was a thing now? You know, I mean, you're sitting at 134k subs at the minute. I think the biggest farming YouTuber now you could say is the Hoof GP, who's like 700,000. So you're, you know, you're in that discussion. When did you realise that this is not just I'm just filming it? It's it's now a um, career path, I guess. In some question, ways, in really, a good question. <clears throat> Do you know what? I've never really thought about that. I think okay. um, there is a video I did when I hit 500 subs. And and I thought, oh my god, I've got five hundred people that that actually have decided they like this enough to subscribe to me. And I remember that because I did record it. It's on YouTube somewhere, and I'm thanking people for subscribing because I'd hit five hundred. So, do you know why that seems like a million miles away, but it actually isn't? Well, I suppose it must have been eight years ago or something. Yeah. But, um, yeah. It kind of changes. I tell you where where things change is when you go out somewhere and people recognise you. Because I didn't see that coming really. I'd had a little bit of recognition from from doing Radio Bristol. I was doing a slot on Radio Bristol, so every, but people recognised my voice yes. rather than my face. So I'd be somewhere and someone would go, "Oh, I heard you on Radio Bristol because you still talk. You know, you recognise someone's voice." Um, but my, my key moment of recognition probably was when I, I went, went with the family to um, the uh, pantomime in Bristol. And I sat down in the pantomime and these people behind me, suddenly one of the, I remember the mum, I think it was something, tapped me on the shoulder and went, you're the funky farmer, aren't you? And I went, yeah. And they said, oh, we love watching you. My son watches you all the time and stuff. And... And it was really nice because they were sort of like, they weren't sort of saying it because for any reason other than they'd gone out of the way to say, oh, we like watching you. And it was, you know, that's nice. And over the years, every now and then I do get, I get messages sent to me 
I get I get quite a lot of messages come through different media. You know, some people write to me, some people send me on Instagram messages, some people, um, and they some of them are quite touching. I sometimes get quite emotional about it because I've had some people that um, over lockdown have actually had real mental health problems, uh, and I've used my videos to help them through it and. I'm not thinking of when I'm recording these videos, I'm not thinking about that. I'm just doing a video, but I didn't partly because I try and make my videos a bit lighthearted. Sometimes, you know, I myself can get down and you could do a video where you're like, Oh God, this is a rubbish day. But generally I try and make it a little bit of a laugh. And especially if I've got my kids involved and stuff, we have a bit of fun. Um, and another, another example of where I didn't see this happening was, see this coming is that um i got contacted by someone who was using my videos with someone who had autism okay and there was someone over in the east of the country and they would they would have a i don't know what the word is not counseling with them but they would have a, a one-to-one with them once a week with this chap who had autism who was in his 50s couldn't read and write but what they were doing is they were using my videos as a way to engage with him so he, he loved farming and tractors so he would watch my videos and they would prepare a questionnaire for him. So he would he would actually, because he loved farming videos, he would watch the videos and then they would say to him, so, so what color tractor was Rich driving today? And can you tell me how many calves were in the shed that he was in and stuff like that? And they would use it, they were using it as a way of bringing him out of his shell and engaging with the people that they were trying, you know, he was trying to work, they were trying to work with. He would, you know, because, and, it, and I, and they, they went, sent me a letter saying, a long email about, you don't know how much difference you've made to this chap. And it was like, oh. Wow. Oh, mate, I, I'm choking up about it now, really, because that was really emotional because, uh, you know, you all want to do good in life, I think, or I think most people do. But, you know, that was something out of the blue which made a difference for someone, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful thing. That's quite something, that is. It was, it was, yeah. You know, and you know, this is again going down a different route that I didn't expect, but autism is often seen as a disability, and I've always seen it as this phenomenal ability. And the the focus someone with autism can have on something is amazing. Their abilities are different, that's all it is. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um my an ex-partner of mine actually tried to start up a charity that was based around a connection between um kids with autism and animals and it was basically like a a, a, a respite centre for parents and they would go with the ponies and horses and mm. the, the the knowledge they had of oh, yeah. their specific interest was mm. important mm. you know and we could imagine it's amazing where they can go with it really yeah it is it i is. know a lot about the subject but i picked up a bit and you sort of think yeah first of all you think oh autism what's all that about it sounds really bad but actually if you get it in the right place and can focus it in the right place, these people can do wonderful things. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just, that's an emotional story. <laughs> I feel when I read the email, I was on holiday, it came through. I remember it. I was in, I was in Kent on holiday and this email came through and I was having dinner with my parents and all with us, my, my wife and two young kids. And I had to go out in the garden and read it. So I was just like, Oh, this is choking me up. Yeah. I can't believe this. You know, I mean I did some more details in it which I won't reveal. For sure, yeah, yeah, obviously. But it was uh it was a very amazing thing, really. It made a difference in someone's life, which is 
Good. I like that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I mean, if that, that's reason enough to be doing the YouTube channel. <laughs> yeah. You know. I think um, sometimes you see, it is a bit, can be a bit of a treadmill doing YouTube videos in the fact that you kind of, to keep your audience, you need to be uploading quite regularly. And sometimes you can be a little bit like, oh, Christ, I've got to do a video this week, really. Although I don't really have that problem because I've always got something going on. Yeah. But, um, but when you get messages from people saying, you know, how much they've enjoyed the video, I just had someone come through tonight, actually, just through by Instagram message me saying, really enjoying the vlogs at the moment. And that's the sort of thing, I, you know, it's nice to have that, to keep you going and doing them, really. Yeah. We, all and, you know, we spoke before we hit record there, Rich, about, you know, social media gets a lot of bad press. And mm. my honest opinion on that is I think a lot of it's merited. Um, but I think there is a really good piece of social media out there that like you're talking yeah. about, there's so many positives to it. And uh, like these people that are messaging you, commenting, whatever, saying the good that you're bringing to them and whatnot, if there was more of that on it as opposed to trolling and keyboard warriors, then it, it would be yeah. a really nice place. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, we've kind of got kind of got waylaid there. Uh, you, are you posting once a day or? No, I couldn't I thought do it was that. three days in a row at the minute. That's all. Uh, Is it? I don't, yeah, I'm a bit random, you see. Now, this is this is where I think I've mentioned you off camera before. I don't really play the YouTube game. I, I think um, I'm a bit haphazard on it all, really, because I, I've kind of decided I don't want to try and make myself... A, a, YouTube does not... I don't want it to be my God. I want it to be something I do because you enjoy rather than... So, theoretically, they advise you to regularly update on a certain day and everything like that, but and consistently but the trouble is i find with my farming is that i'm not hunting it sure that i can can say to someone on a friday i can do a video for them because yes. you know what something might not happen on monday tuesday wednesday it might happen on friday so i then would upload it on saturday so i kind of i'm a bit random but um some weeks are really full on and i mean when i start silage making i can get a lot of video footage out there and might have videos every day for five days and then Sometimes, especially in wintertime, it can be just the same old all the time. And you might just get one or two videos a week. I try not to do more than probably two to three videos a week. Purely because I haven't got the time, you know, trying to run the farm as well. If I had to do a video a day, I think I'll make a rod for my own back, really. You do, yeah. And, and like, they're, they're roughly 11, 12-minute videos. That, that's, that's not 11, 12 minutes of work. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. How, how much video do you think you're getting for those 12 minutes? What, when I'm filming it? Yeah. Um, I'm a, I do tend to film what I show. I don't leave a lot out. Okay. Um, the bits I cut out, though, are usually where I just film the feet. <laughs> 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 or, you know, um, quite often when I start filming, like uh, I did one the other week when I was filming the plowing of the maize crop. Now, when I first start filming that, I'm I'm kind of trying to work out where the best view is. So I will film a far away shot, zoom it back. That's why I use a camcorder, actually. A lot of people use different um, things. A lot of people use GoPros and stuff. Yeah. I use a camcorder primarily because I love the fact that I've got a zoom on it, a really good zoom. Yeah. So I can get do a, a field shot, like like filming the, the maze um, uh, plowing. I don't have to run up to the other end of the field to get close up. I can do a kind of pan up. Um, 
But because of that, sometimes you get a wobble on when you yeah underway. So sometimes I'll film a couple of minutes, but actually, do you know, what? I chop out the beginning or in the middle because I've gone too wobbly. Uh, but uh, yeah, I generally, it's a job to know. You see, when I first started filming on YouTube, you might see quite a lot of my early videos are only a couple of minutes long. Um, and then I've sort of started getting a little bit more longer as, as I try and make a complete story through as I go. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I do ones that will be 20 minutes long or more, but generally it seems like the audience don't really want too long a video. Yeah, I think, I think well, the, the peak YouTube video was eight to 12 minutes, I think. Is right. that, yeah. yeah, I think that probably would be about fair. You know, I, I think I've definitely gone away from doing the two minute videos because they just seem to be too short and sweet. Yeah. And you know what it's like, if you're looking for YouTube and a video is only two minutes long, you think, well, oh, Christ, that's not very long. I've got to find another one and another one. Whereas if you get 10 minutes, you can actually sit down and, you know, that's a nice little time to watch on something. Yeah, and maybe if you're doing two minutes, you could look at TikTok. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true, actually. <laughs> um, why Funky Farmer? Why the Funky Farmer? That was, again, it wasn't really contrived. I used to, I used to do just doodles on on when i used to send someone like a christmas card i'd write i'd sign it off the funky farmer just for a bit of a laugh that was when i was really young um and i just thought you know what that's a name that sticks so when i put it on the youtube channel i just thought because the, the one thing is quite hard to remember if you're looking if you say to someone oh i saw this really good video on youtube um oh what was the name of that guy i watched yeah dave richardson I uh, can't remember how he spelled his surname. Was it a, was it a CK or you know? Whereas if I, if I had the name the Funky Farmer, it's kind of a bit memorable. Yeah. So True. that's why I checked it on there as the Funky Farmer. And that's one bit of advice I would give anyone is if they're if they're setting up a YouTube channel, the one thing to do is think about your YouTube name, because if you are going to set up a channel now, you don't want to do you want to think about the longevity of it, maybe. So you might be doing YouTube on that channel in 10 years. And if you built that history up, you don't really want to think, I've got to change this name in 10 years' time because I started out as Mike's Toy Train videos. Yeah. And then you've progressed to Steam Engines or, sorry, the grandfather's clock's going off there. No, it's fine. Um, it's fine. So, so um, you know, if you say you were focusing on uh, model trains, on your video but then maybe you want to go into model plane stuff so maybe think about mike's model models rather than mike's model trains because it, you know and, and, and try and pick something snappy and stuff like that rather than just going for your name because i think otherwise you're kind of fighting against everyone else who's got a name a little bit like yours um give us an honest opinion on rural to kitchen then well that is a nice one i like okay. that <laughs> That's a good one. i'm not making that up do you know that is a, that is a good name rural to kitchen and it kind of brings you into a kind of, oh, right, I've got a rough idea about what this is about. Yeah, yeah, true. Yeah, you see, how did you pick yours? <laughs> I, so Field to Fork's obviously a thing. Um, I like the name Stable, I like the name Stable to Table, but it's yeah. it's a thing as well. And uh, yeah. when I started it, I had a, well, I didn't have it, my parents had a law business that I did a lot of the running of, and I wanted to involve everything in the rural sector all the way through to your kitchen. Uh, so mm. be that wood, be that food, be that whatever. Uh, yeah, because it's embracing everything then, isn't it? I did have a very embarrassing realisation. I was telling you I started this in January. 
probably about four podcasts in, I went in to edit a video's thumbnail, and uh, I realised it was still called Rural to Kick Thing. Thank <laughs> 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 the Lord you can edit the name of a YouTube channel. What's going on here? Who are we kicking? <laughs> I know. Oh, I was like, you know that sort of like, 40 seconds between I found this is wrong and can I change it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it's I, fine. Got a logo as well, I mean. Uh, yeah, so I, I got that commission very early on. I paid a guy called Fraser Dunn. Uh, it was a hundred pound for everything, and he did such a good job of uh, yeah. sending me versions that could be put in as PDFs, as everything, as a, a banner, as a sort of square thing. It was mm. the best thing I ever did. Um, because before it was just a photo of me lambing a fake sheep in a vet. <laughs> so. funny as well. I, I think um, this is a funny thing about doing this sort of thing, is that suddenly you've got to become an expert. Not an expert, but you've got to suddenly start thinking of all these other things. Because I didn't have a, I didn't have a logo or any merch until about 18 months ago. I right. was so behind on everyone on that. And then I realised everyone else had got it. <laughs> so, uh, I thought, you know, I better get on get and do this. Because I had, like you, I just had my profile picture up. And then I realised, like, I look at Tom Pemp and he's got the cow with the horns, isn't he? Yeah. Uh, and I thought, you know what, let's just get something quite simple, like so a tractor. So I, my logo is a simple tractor with a yeah. bit of material under it. Um, but I quite like that because it seems to work quite well, you know? I think, I think Graham Parker's is the best. The Hoof GP has is cool with yeah. the stethoscope and the... Yeah, that that's is, very good. Yeah, that's right. That'll be very professionally done, though, I assume. It looks very good. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to, more more for the viewer's perspective, you can talk about this if you wish, uh, Richard, there, but um, I follow quite a lot of YouTube, and I follow quite a lot of big YouTubers in the sort of quote-unquote YouTube scene, if you know what I mean. And uh, yeah. some of these guys have got 20 million subs in that, um, but one guy, it's about 4 million subs, called Zerka and he's part of this Sidemen group and there was a big thing last week where he was the last one of the seven in this Sidemen to get a video with 10 million views and uh, you've surpassed that quite phenomenally you've got a video with 19 million views Richard, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Well I've got to laugh really because um, I mean, I, as you said earlier we had a little chat off camera um, I, had, I had no idea I had 19 million views <laughs> <laughs> um, because I kind of, I am I am the worst person for you. I, 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 I've got all these followers and I am the worst person because I don't try very hard on any of this. I just do stuff. <laughs> and uh, I hadn't monitored that and I didn't know it had 19 million. But it's really funny because it is a video of me milking in our milking parlour and it's called Milking in the Breast Parlour Part 1. And uh, it's been on YouTube. That was probably one of my early ones, actually. I think that might even yeah. be the first year I uploaded. But it did seem to go a bit viral the, a, a couple of years ago in India, of all places, because I get the demographics that show where people watch the videos. And yes. it went really big in India. And I just only can assume that is because the cow is sacred over there and someone's latched, you know, looking for cow videos, maybe. I don't know. I'm just guessing. I don't know. Yeah. Because um, it also had a lot of comments from there from Indian people as well and stuff. But I, as I said to you as well, Milking in the Breast Parlour Part 2 has only got 80,000 views. <laughs> with the, Milking in the Breast Parlour Part 1, it's got 19 million. <laughs> and the thing is, the interesting thing is, I think, um, how the hell do you, do you, 
I didn't design, I didn't, I've got 15, I think I've got about 1500 videos on YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Give or take. I'm not exactly sure. Um, how did I end up with that one being the one that got 19 million? I have no idea. <laughs> because I didn't, I didn't go out of my way to do that. I didn't do anything to create that phenomenon, if you like. It's, it's quite funny. Weird. I've got other videos on YouTube, which I, I, you know, looking back, I can't remember, but I know I've got ones I'm more proud of that I think I've done better videos. And even looking at that one there, I think I could probably edit that better and make it better now. But for some reason, that one's the the, the one that everyone likes. The one that YouTube chose. <laughs> well, it, it is a little bit like that. I mean, I think, do you know what? And this is going to be something that is going to be interesting in the future. It's going to get harder and harder for people to become big YouTube stars in a way, because it's a very, it's getting to be a very crowded marketplace. <laughs> and you're all competing for watch time. So, for instance, so when I started, maybe this is why I was lucky. Um, when I started, if you went on to YouTube to look up farming videos, there probably weren't that many people. So someone could find me fairly easily. Okay, and so then I built a bit of momentum. The trouble is for someone's, I'm not trying to put anyone off, because I think they should always try and have a go. But for someone starting now, there are so many people on YouTube. And realistically, how you find it is how they decide to put you on that sidebar. Isn't it? If you're not on the first 20 videos when you type in, sheep lambing you're going to be number 500 the chances of someone getting to your 500 video is quite slim so i don't know how people get traction and be found and you, you see the first 20 i'll be honest i look at the top four and just refresh yeah. you know uh, yeah. it, it's it's media is almost too easily accessible now to the point you just if it's not right now it's it's it's, it's rubbish um from what I understand, there is a a sort of a like tags are important. So if your yeah. name is tagged in a video, that's big. You know, like the most viewed podcast I've had is Cami uh, of the Sheep Game, and Cami's uh, got twenty k subs, and I tagged his name, and suddenly the the podcast goes well. So like that's it's sort of involved in that, and uh, but there is also a I can't remember the program, but there's a YouTube program that basically just randomly boosts a consistent video that's that's sort of, but it's but i mean you you have been in 1500 videos you can't there's no period of time that youtube's been around and that not be consistent you know so i don't know i better go and check the tags on milking in the breast parlor part one and, and take, <laughs> put all those tags on all my other videos yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh good good well i'm i'm, I'm conscious uh, richard i always like to try and hit 45 minutes and um, we're currently right. at about 51 um, which is perfect. Oh, I like the sort of the quarters of an hour to an hour, but I, I think given the fact that it's technically for you and I an hour and a half, uh, in an effort to keep the podcast sort of to a point succinct, uh, I'm going to sort of say if is, have you got anything more you'd like to focus on in particular? Um, well, not really. I, I just think um, certainly if you're going on YouTube, you want to my advice for anyone when they're doing youtube is think about the content more than worry about the equipment you've got this is just a bit of my experience of putting it back to someone because i quite often get asked what camera do i use okay for my youtube videos now i can tell you that i use a second-hand sony camcorder off ebay yeah i haven't got anything expensive and the reason for that is because i tend to trash cameras on the farm okay 
I have a real problem with dust. That's my biggest work problem I have with on the farm. It's a very dusty environment and I'm carrying the camera in my boiler seat often. And I've ruined quite a lot of cameras where the dust gets into the lens and, yeah. and really messes it up. So I end up, so I don't buy expensive cameras anymore. I just buy cheap ones off Amazon. I'm oh, sorry, eBay. Um, usually a Sony camcorder. But um, in fact, there you go. That's what I use. Yeah. I, I like this because I can, it's not got a battery. Oh, it has. I can flip that round. When I'm talking to the camera, I can see myself there. All um, right. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, it's quite clever because you, you want to be able to see what, what you're it's going to be on the screen. So I can flip it over. I can see myself. <laughs> there you go. Um, but I, I film like that. And it, so I use that. Um, so my my advice for anyone is when they when they're thinking about doing videos on, on YouTube and stuff, is it's not about the equipment. It is well, you know, you can get HD and you can be super fab, but my you see, and I see this from my kids. Is the content that's important before the film quality. You know, I'm not talking about if you've got a really rubbish, someone filmed it all like that and it's all really blurry, then that is rubbish. But worrying about whether you've got HD or standard definition stuff is secondary to, do you know what, is your, is your content interesting and engaging and will people like to stay watching it? And that's what people, when, you know, when they're thinking about doing videos on YouTube, think about that. Think about what story are you telling? And, and also maybe tell a story. I, one of the best YouTubers I saw was a young girl, I've forgotten her name, down in Cornwall. Um, and when I did the bail off challenge, you might remember I cut some bales open. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it went viral around the world, which is a bit weird. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's another thing you do and you don't expect that to happen. Um, she did it with her dad. And right. I, I, I actually, I was so impressed with the quality of her videos. I sent her some of my merch. I sent her a funky farmer sweatshirt as yes. a gift. I just yeah. said, look, I really impressed. And what she'd done, she, she'd started out, she was only about 13. She was filming videos where she told a little story each time. And that okay. was quite nice. You know, she'd go feeding the cattle, but she'd go there and she'd go, well, this is my, me and my sister. We're talking about these cattle today and we're going to film the feeding. And, and, you know, and that's, I think you, you tell a story in a video. And then that makes it interesting. Well, Sorry, well, I'm, I'm going on. No, not at all. Personality is a thing that's quite often lost in the internet sort of thing. And you're talking about quality of setup. There's mine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like the milk tray. You make me hungry now. Yeah, no, I know. I've, I've just realised I put that up. My, my girlfriend will be saying why I'm getting milk tray on my own. But anyway. Um, yeah, mine. Yeah, exactly. You sort of actually preempted me there. I was saying if you'd anything else to cover, and then I always finish with two questions. One of which is if you'd any tips for people coming into industry. So you yeah. you read my mind almost. Um, but where the other thing I always ask uh, Richard is where where do you see yourself in five years? More wrinkly. <laughs> 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 Maybe not with hands and barely on. Um, <laughs> I don't have a plan. Well, I do sort of. So I can see myself still being here doing the farming side of it. That ain't gonna change really. Um, there's two things I'd like to do on YouTube. One of them involves my son, the other involves other people. So the one involving my son, and I've kind of sort of made a bit of promise to him, is that I would like to restore a tractor on YouTube. Okay. A, a Pacific tractor, a Massey Ferguson 35, you know, the really old vintage yeah, tractors. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, and there's a, it's interesting because we used to have one of those on the farm, okay? My dad had it. It was a, a it had a loader on it. It's a massive 35, a red one, lovely little tractor. And we're, 20 years ago, when we changed tractors, we got another loader tractor. And this old Massey was just like, well, what are we going to do with that? Oh, we'll sell it. So we sold it and we got like 1200 quid for it or something. This is 20 years ago, mine. And after, and now I've got kids, I really regret that going. Yeah. Because it was a lovely little tractor, a little drive, you know. So I plan to get one of those when Harry's a bit older, because he's my son Harry's the one who's probably more interested in mechanics and stuff. Okay. I would think within five years I will have this vintage tractor. And then we're gonna hopefully me and Harry will do series of videos where we restore it. And then I'd like to do a little vintage tractor run videos and maybe do something like that. I don't know. Um, and the other one is I'd like to do more off-farm interviewing videos. Now, that is that is more dependent on how much time I get. Because I really like you've interviewed me. I actually really like going to... Well, my thing is I like to go to small independent businesses. So I've done a few in the past. If you go on YouTube, I've done the um, Isle of Wight Cheese Company. Yep. I was on holiday in the Isle of Wight. Usually it revolves around me being on holiday, which isn't very often. And then I look up what's around me and try and go to them. So I've done a baker's in Devon where I went to the baker's early in the morning and saw them making the bread and stuff. Yeah. Um, I've done the local butcher where we've gone there and, you know, he's talked me through how he got into butchery and stuff. I really enjoy those sort of interview videos. And that's something I think I'd like to pursue a bit more. But that, that's more about that takes me off the farm. So that might be a bit more when I'm old and retired. That, that's an interesting one. That I mean, uh, that this isn't a hopeless plug for my stuff at all. But um, go and check out a video I have called the Aran Milk Journey. Um, so I'm from the Isle of Aran, uh, and there's this quite locked off story you can do there. And uh, the the story is that milk doesn't travel any further than twenty two miles. You know, and that's a great story. Um, and I love doing that. I went to the dairy farm. I went to the uh, cheese making facility, I went to the cheese shop, I went to the, the ice cream and milk making facility and the shops that sell the milk. And it's really interesting, you know, and just hearing other folks' stories and stuff yeah. is brilliant. Uh, I think the artisan, the smaller scale stuff, where they're not, you know, they're not, I'm not talking about flipping Tesco cheeses, I'm talking about the little yeah. guys who've really got a passion for it. Um, there's quite a journey there because some of these people have really risked a lot to do it. I went when I was in the Isle of Wight, I also went to this place where they um another farm, dairy farm, where they were bottling their own milk, and it was a big investment for them. And it was a family farm, it's quite scary, really. Yeah, it is. Invested in the bottling plant was a big thing, you know. And if you're going through that fear, there's a definite passion there. So yeah, you know, definitely. I don't want to say made with love because that's as cringy as you can get, but like it is sort of made with that you know yeah care involved. yeah well that's a very nice note to end on um yeah i think i think we've really covered the story of of the funky farmer there um <laughs> first off hey richard thank you very much for coming on i appreciate that um richard actually just saw i put a post up about the podcasts that are are to be in production as of at the minute which is may time and uh, he just said, you know, this looks cool or whatever, good stuff. And I was like, oh, you'll be good to have on. <laughs> um, and yeah, now, after being on the phone to you for about an hour and a half, uh, it's been it's been good fun. So, uh, yeah, thank you very much for coming on. Um, hopefully, hopefully we'll keep in touch and maybe 
maybe by the time this is out, Richard, you'll have the chance to have seen some of the podcasts. Uh, maybe, yeah. maybe you won't. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, yeah, thank you very much. Um, thanks to you that are, that are listening. Uh, and as always, guys, if you have any tips for me, I'm very much new to this game, um, I need them. <laughs> so pass them on to me if you've anything you want to tell me. Uh, if you've ideas for folk to come on, uh, and that sort of goes for yourself as well, Richard, if you have any ideas for folk that might be quite an interesting story, let me know and I will try and make those happen. And we will see you in two weeks' time for R2Cast number 17. <laughs>